Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 15th of March, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, of course, bringing us northern, northern exposure from north of the border. Uh, David, uh, we'll get straight on. And uh, we're starting off with uh, Sarah Everard uh, and the, the uh, protest, which uh, most mainstream media suggested turned violent. Uh, Tell us more. Well, yes, this is Associated Press reporting. Uh, London police drag a woman away. Crowd gathered despite the COVID rules. And here we see a, a young woman with, uh, with two-colour hair and lots of piercings. So the sort of person who might have supported all of the, 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 the COVID uh, restrictions. And she's come along in a mask, but that's not been enough. Uh, and here she's been pressed up against a tree and cuffed. And her crime? Well, she attended uh, what was going to be a vigil uh, for Sarah Everard in Clapham Common uh, on March 13. Um, and uh, just just for a foreign audience that maybe hasn't seen this story, just uh, give us a brief on uh, Sarah Everard herself. Well, it's a, a, a young woman, age 33. Uh, she uh, disappeared from the streets of London around 9pm at night. Um, and uh, after some searching, um, the police interest uh, concentrated on a suspect who was a serving police officer. In fact, a member of the specialist close protection uh, team around um, uh, diplomats and uh, other uh, government VIPs. And he has been arrested uh, and he has been charged. And uh, sadly, her remains were found um, in a wood. Um, in Kent uh, sometime thereafter and uh, this has now generated an enormous public reaction um, with uh, interesting media access and, uh, and media interest. Uh, yes, so uh, well the question is has the event itself generated that public reaction or is there something else at work but we'll come on to that in a second. In the meantime, uh, Christina Dick uh, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner has come under a lot of come, come under a lot of criticism for how this uh, uh, vigil was uh, policed, uh, but she's uh, standing firm. She said quite rightly, as far as I can see, uh, my team felt that this is now an unlawful gathering, uh, which poses a considerable risk to p people's health. Uh, I don't think anybody who is not in the operation can actually pass a detailed comment on the rightness and wrongness of the uh, subsequent police operation. Uh, David, that's a, a pretty um, arrogant position to take, many people are saying. Well, pretty arrogant position, uh, but she's using arrogance to counter hypocrisy because what's happening is she's coming for, in for a lot of criticism from people in politics, the very same people in politics who were crying um, that we must shut down um, these anti-lockdown protesters and we must uh, all mask up and we must all obey all the rules and who were passing the rules, who were voting for the rules but now those rules are being applied to quote the wrong situation to the people that they would want to have supporting, people they support politically, uh, people they would want to have on the streets. Now it's uh, the, 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 the politicians have turned against the police and uh, it's, it's, it's put uh, Christina Dick in an interesting position because having backed all of the assault on her rights, having taken all of the instruction from the government and, and applied quite political policing in the past where Black Lives Matter could protest, but anti-lockdown protesters or, um, or 
um, uh, pro-veteran group protesters couldn't protest. They were met with violence from the police. The BLM protesters were met by the police kneeling in front of them. Um, that obviously generated a lot of criticism for the Met. So she's obviously decided that she's going to just apply the rules and play it a bit straighter. And of course, she's immediately come in for yet more criticism um, for doing that. Um, but uh, one person who's uh, featured quite a bit in the coverage is a young lady with red hair. Yes, this is uh, Patsy Stevenson, and uh, she has been very much the star of this event. Uh, here you see uh, a, a dramatic photograph of the, of the young woman with red hair and a mask being cuffed by multiple officers. And uh, it's a nice photograph, but it's slightly overexposed. And I think you'll find that the next one is beautifully lit. Um, this, is, this is her again, uh, sitting, looking at the camera, mask-free this time, and uh, still getting cuffed by the officers. I'm not sure quite, quite what took so long. But uh, it's, a, it's a nice photograph, you have to admit, that's uh, making quite a, a visual impact. So she became the star of the protest. Um, she generated the images that would go all around the world. And uh, so the question is, well, who exactly is uh, Patsy Stevenson? And would you believe, Mike, um, she's an actress. Uh, she's also a student, but she's an actor, presenter, model, dancer, entertainer and extra uh, and uh, she is uh, from South End on Sea and uh, she's, uh, she can do improvisation so that's good to know um, and a little bit concerning that uh, so often that the people who turn up in these media events getting their photograph all over the press have unusual uh, backstories and uh, quite a lot of them tend to be act actors and actresses now, uh, she then went on Twitter um, to issue a, a, a call for action. Hello, I'm Patsy. After what happened today at Clapham Common, I want to redirect the focus away from the police and towards what actually happened. Um, we need to be seen and heard, and that's why um, I'm calling for everyone to meet at 5pm on the 15th of March outside Parliament Square. See you there. So now she's redirecting the whole movement. That seems an unusual position for a young woman to be in. Not quite sure of what she's re redirecting it towards, because away from the police to what towards what matters, but without a, an explanation of, as to what that is. And it was a police officer who's been charged with with this uh, murder. So redirecting it away from the police seems an odd statement. Uh, but calling for essentially uh, mass movements onto the streets on the 15th of March. Or at least she was, because someone's had a word. I suspect the phrase £10,000 fine might have come up in this conversation. And that video is now gone from YouTube, uh, gone from Twitter, to be replaced by a small statement that she is not calling for anyone to take to the streets on the 15th of March. So uh, that's the current position with Patsy. Um, but in the meantime, uh, yesterday, uh, I'm sure people will have seen some of the coverage uh, on YouTube and so on, some of the live stream coverage. Uh, there were more protests yesterday, this time outside uh, New Scotland Yard. And we're not going to show any of the video of that because actually some of the chanting was, was quite obscene. Oh, David? 
Well, yes, I mean, there was this protest and it was uh, extremely aggressive. It was uh, foul and abusive language used all the time. Um, ACAB, if people know what that means, that was used uh, a great deal. Um, and it was, the general theme was um, a rage and, and, and hatred towards, uh, towards the police. And that was really about it. Um, anti-men to some extent, anti-police to a much larger extent, and extremely emotional, uh, extremely angry. Um, yeah, but uh, coming back to the uh, the original event, uh, you have another little bit of video to show here. Yeah, this is very interesting. So the the, the event was called a vigil, but it, it was never particularly quiet. Um, there was a lot of uh, sort of left-wing call and answer stuff where a speaker would say something and the whole crowd would repeat the words back to them. There's a lot of this going on. But then this man stood up and, and he made a short speech, which, I, which I'd like people to hear. Uh, the, the crowd's reaction uh, was very hostile, but the speech, well, was quite striking. Ladies and gentlemen, with all due respect, I would like to make a short speech for a very simple reason. When this event was called, it was initially called as a silent vigil. But the police and the courts banned us from protesting against the police murderer. And how and why was he able to murder? Sarah, how and why? It was because he pulled her over in the name of coronavirus legislation. We must be free to move, to visit friends, to be on the streets and to protect ourselves and others. This is not, as the television has said, a conflict between men and women. It is a conflict between all of us and the state apparatus which has imposed a dictatorship over all of us. Thank you very much. So that, that was, that was accurate. Right? There wasn't a word there that I would say was anything less than true. Um, and particularly the bit about it's not a war between men and women, which is what the, 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 the television is trying to persuade people it is. It's about the state versus all of us. Now, that message did not go down well with the crowd because they, are, they were there in order to promote, in order to further the war of, of women versus men uh, and, and this, this subdivision of society that, that I suspect the state wants because it's easier to instill tyranny when, when you always have another group to blame. And here was a man standing up, I've no idea who he was, a man standing up and saying that, uh, which was quite impressive, but also striking was the crowd not willing to listen to him, partly because he was male, perhaps, um, and largely because he was taking a view pro-freedom against government tyranny and against um, government tyranny via the coronavirus acts and legislation. So here we see uh, a, a, a left-wing uh, crowd on the street 
essentially supporting more tyranny. That is the agenda. Um, but uh, what, uh, what was Baroness Jones uh, then saying? So now we come to Baroness Jones, who is um, the first, and I don't think any longer the only, but the first uh, Green Party peer. So um, she gave an extraordinary speech in the House of Lords that has to be heard to be believed. And in the week that the woman, Sarah Everard, uh, was abducted and we suppose killed because remains have been found in a woodland in Kent, I would argue that at the next opportunity for any bill that's appropriate, I might actually put in an amendment to create a curfew for men on the streets after 6pm, which I feel would make women a lot safer and discrimination of all kinds would be lessened. So there you have it. Um, taking all the law-abiding men off the street will make women safer uh, because well, they'll just be left with the rapists and the police. And obviously we know from this week we can trust police officers. And uh, locking up um, half of the population based on their sex uh, for half of the day uh, will promote an end to discrimination. Uh, you would think that that would fail the giggle test. You would think that every other politician would say, you have got to be insane, but no. No, I give you Hannah Bardell MP, uh, SMP, um, uh, a, a, a lesbian lady who's MP for Livingston. Um, she says, it was definitely worth considering. And when many, many people on Twitter said, you are joking, aren't you? Uh, she said, she, she doubled, tripled and quadrupled, Darren. So, um, so she talked about, uh, she couldn't be more serious after Sarah's disappearance. Women in the area were told not to go out. Uh, why not tell the men not to go out? Why should the liberties and freedoms of women be, get constrained because of violent men? And she responded again um, uh, that... Uh, uh, that it's necessary to, to consider these things to stop the epidemic of violence against women. So she's all for this idea. She thinks it's reasonable. In fact, the male um, head of the Welsh Assembly was asked about this live on air and had to think on his feet, obviously not a strong suit. Uh, he said, well, it wouldn't be my first choice, but, but it would be considered in extreme circumstances, something he then had to roll back from when the press reported that he was considering... Um, a curfew for all men. So this is where we've got. Uh, we're now promoting the the uh, uh, sisterhood's fight against the patriarchy. We're dividing men and women from one another, and we're promoting um, some very strange ideas. And surprisingly, once again, dictatorial laws uh, are being considered that will infringe all of our rights. And of course, this won't actually come to pass. But the narrative has been established that enables other, other uh, laws to be considered that will infringe our rights even further. Uh, and we'll be coming on to that in a little bit. Now, the question is, David, what, what or who is driving this? Is this really uh, a grassroots uh, movement of, of women activists uh, worried about uh, violence against, against women? Well, I thought maybe just to sort of consider this, uh, we'd look at, a little, look at the, some of the language that we've been seeing in recent uh, weeks 
uh, you know, phrases, trademarks effectively from uh, from Boris and, and others. Build back better is one. Variants of concern is another. Level up is another. And we'll be level up will be mentioned a few times on this news program today. But when you go looking for some of these and looking at at what's behind these phrases, well, first of all, build back better, very much great reset and World Economic Forum. But level up seems to be great reset and and uh, and. Uh, um, uh, Economic, World Economic Forum as well, uh, because uh, here is uh, an article from the World Economic Forum's website, The Great Reset Must Place Social Justice at Its Centre, uh, and it says this, um, this can be done by shifting the focus from giving a hand to these communities to empowering them with large-scale public investments to level up access to conditions on a par with those of more privileged communities. They're talking about uh, Africa, but if we head on, uh, we find another article from the World Economic Forum, Data Bias, The Dangers of Being Female in a World Designed for Men. And they're talking about an organization called Level Up, which is a British organization. Uh, here it is uh, on screen. Uh, and this is all about working together for gender justice in the UK. And David, you know, this might seem a little bit tenuous to some, but it seems to me that when you start seeing catchphrases and, and uh uh, things of this type appearing in the narratives of multiple different, it doesn't matter whether it's a politician or, or a, uh, an NGO or a think tank um, or, a, or a campaigning organization, you start to see the same catchphrases appearing. Um, you be, begin to wonder who's, where's that phrase originating and whose policy is it that they're promoting? Well, this is it. Whose line is it anyway? Uh, the, and, and it's all across the globe. I mean, Build Back Better, Biden's talking about it. You see it in Australia, you see it all around the world. Build Back Better. Uh, yes, where does it originate? Well, we start to look at um, non-governmental organisations. We start to look at things like the World Health Organisation and the people who fund them and the, the tax-exempt foundations who fund them. These seem to generate a great deal of the policy. Doesn't come from our parliaments, doesn't come from our politicians. Most politicians are irrelevant. Yes. So uh, let's see, you're talking about the infringement of freedoms and so on. Let's, uh, let's look at some of that infringement uh, in action. Uh, of course, Coronavirus Act uh, is nearly a year old. Um, and uh, well, its six month renewal vote is coming up on the 25th of March. So if anybody wants to get involved with their uh, party representative, uh, and maybe give them their views about whether this uh, act should be renewed for, for another six months. Uh, now is the time to do it. Uh, but uh, the uh, House, of, House of Commons uh, Constitution Committee, uh, Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Select Committee is a little bit unhappy about the potential for uh, the renewal of this act without some action from the government. They're concerned that gov the data isn't being shared correctly. Uh, they say that government forced, or sorry, coronavirus, coronavirus forced the government to ask the public to accept unprecedented restrictions on their freedoms. Well, of course, coronavirus didn't ask anybody to do anything. Uh, the government uh, demanded the public accept unprecedented restrictions on their freedoms. But anyway, they go on. Therefore, the government has a moral imperative to clearly justify each of their decisions. This also means taking, making available the data that's driving the response. Um, they went on to say the ability of parliament and the public to understand government's decisions and hold them to account is central to democracy. This is why transparency around the data is so important. Throughout our inquiry, we have struggled to establish who the government sees as accountable for the data underpinning decisions on COVID-19. Uh, the system to show clear accountability for decision making should be quite simple. 
Departments and the permanent secretaries are responsible uh, and for advising the government and ministers are accountable to parliament for decisions based on that advice. Now, before I just go on with this, uh, David, I just wanted to briefly get your thoughts on this because uh, that statement is really uh, important. Departments and their permanent secretaries are responsible for advising the government. The government and ministers are accountable to parliament. Uh, so the only accountability here is with ministers who make decisions based on advice that are given by responsible permanent secretaries, but there's no accountability by the permanent secretaries themselves. No. And, and it seems that the ministers, well, the implication is, is the ministers have to take what the permanent secretaries say as uh, beyond contestation. That is just a fact of life. There doesn't seem to be any um, allowance for ministers actually having an independent view. Indeed. Did you have some thoughts on that? Before we move on? No, move on, okay. because we'll, we'll come back on to some of this. Okay, while only the Prime Minister can stand in front of the country and Parliament and take account for key decisions such as lockdown, it is the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster who we believe is accountable for ensuring that these decisions are informed by data through the COVID-O committees as part of the coordinated response. So the, the blame, perhaps, if you want to put it that way, for uh, the decisions, uh, the data, at least its driving decisions, is very much being put on Michael Gove, who, of course, is also uh, a cabinet office, cabinet office minister and, uh, and so on. So then we uh, uh, come to the four things that they claim the government needs to do. Now, the ministerial codes needs to be strengthened, they claim. Uh, the cabinet office must clearly outline responsibilities for decision making. The government must share all the available data uh, and government must publish data thresholds aligned to the roadmap, and that's the roadmap for the release of, uh, of the lockdown. Um, so, uh, Brian, what are your thoughts? Because uh, th there's a few questions arise out of that. Well, I think there's lots of questions because we're seeing more and more people in government who are simply not accountable as we lose more and more of our freedoms. And these two things are moving together. We lose more freedoms when we try and press back to say, well, why are we losing these freedoms? We find we don't even have the freedom to to uh, question the people responsible for bringing this in. So it's a sort of self-fulfilling circle going mm. on at the moment. Who's going to suffer most? Well, if we've got some women, at least at the moment, who think they're the victims, I'm going to suggest that they're not at present because who are the real victims? Well, it's the vulnerable in society. It's those elderly people who can't defend themselves, uh, people who are shut up in care homes. Uh, but we've also got vulnerable individuals themselves. So have a look at this BBC headline here, COVID-19. Charities urge vulnerable people to book vaccines. And who have we got driving the policy? Well, we're into the charities. We've spoken about the role of political charities many times before. Uh, we've got cancer research here, Mencap, Terence Higgins Trust. Uh, they're all now jumping in on the bandwagon to say that vulnerable people um, have got to get that vaccine. And it's saying that um, people with serious underlying um, health conditions, they need to get the vaccine. But of course, the data, uh, you've just been covering that with the House of Commons issues, the data is not available to show the risks. This is what all the yellow card system is about. If people go onto the MRI, 
MHRA section of the gov.uk website, they can start to see the uh, list which goes on and on and on and on about adverse reactions, but none of that is being reported to the public. Where does it take us? Well, it takes us here. Judge rules man with learning difficulties should be vaccinated. And uh, specialists have said that because this man is clinically vulnerable and in a priority group, he should be vaccinated. The parents have tried to uh, defend him. They've raised objections and they've raised a number of concerns about alleged side effects. Well, the BBC's put in alleged side effects because the BBC simply doesn't report side effects. But the judge here, Jonathan Butler, agreed with NHS Thameside and Glossop uh, that vaccination was in his best interest. Well, I managed to find the judge. This is going back to 2018, but a very interesting article in The Times where The Times is pointing out that the Court of Protection itself is a very... Uh, uh, suspect organisation because it's very difficult for people to find out what's going on inside the court and yet this is the court that's making these very serious life and death freedom or not judgments over individuals. Uh, so this was part of the article here it says the press and public have been allowed to attend most proceedings in the court since 2016 but very little advance information is made available to describe the nature of the hearings. And the Times went on to also say that, of course, people receive what most people judge as a threatening piece of text if they attempt to go near these courts. So what did this judge have to say on the case about the forcible vaccination? He said he'd had no doubt whatsoever that the father's objections are founded on a love for his son and a wish to ensure that he comes to no harm. His objections were not intrinsically illogical. They were certainly not deliberately obstructive. They were made upon the basis as to what he regards as being in the best interests of his son. The concern for his son does him credit, but the family's objections have no clinical evidence base. And that, of course, Mike, is because the British government is making sure that that evidence is not made fully public, although we can see vast amounts of it on the MHRA website. The man was vulnerable and there was overwhelming objective evidence of the, quote, magnetic advantage of a vaccination. Uh, David, you're an engineer. I think you will probably come across uh, magnets and the relative power. Um, how do we equate vaccines and viruses with magnets in a court decision? What is he talking about? That, that's a very bizarre phrase. It shows what he's trying to do, suggest something that he can't quite put into normal words using the English language. It's very strange. I was struck on uh, your report on Friday Mike, um, you were talking about the, the, the regulator um, uh, for vaccines in the UK. They were also talking about alleged side effects. And, and this was in the context of why does no one trust and believe us? Well, you would have to say that if they cannot even be upfront and honest with the British public to admit and detail the side effects which are happening and which they know are happening and still refer, them, refer to them as alleged, side effects, it's hardly surprising that people are losing all confidence in the regulator. 
um, all confidence and uh, we're just bringing this slide this was the final comment I've ruled that the vaccination was in the man's best interest but I have not authorized physical intervention now I find this a very despicable um, use of language here because this man is highly vulnerable so any person in an official capacity simply saying to them you're going to have a vaccine they're going to acquiesce to that so uh, the judge is trying to say that well he's not going to be physically held down well no you don't need to because this is a vulnerable people and just by using speech you can uh, push that person into submission so these are the dangers of how the system's working in UK let's just bring us back to the uh, BBC article here because this was kindly point pointed out to me by somebody from within the NHS uh, what are we looking at well we're looking at the hand that's giving the injection uh, because this hand is clearly wearing false nails and this is actually quite important because we've got a person administering a vaccine with no gloves and wearing false fingernails and why is this important because the vaccine warnings clearly state that spills need to be cleaned with antiviral products uh, therefore there are inherent dangers in the vaccine reaching the skin so that's the first thing and the second thing is if you've got false fingernails on you can't clean your fingers properly because dirt and disease can be under those fingernails so the BBC even in presenting this case simply doesn't understand what it claims to be reporting um, okay, I want to just briefly mention a new article on the UK Colm website from Ian Davis uh, asking why are we still giving people COVID-19 vaccines? And this is really a response to what's been going on with respect to the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, so it begins recently, Austria, Denmark, Norway, Iceland, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Romania and Italy put a hold in the rollout of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. Now, I, I do suggest people read that article and please share it as widely as you possibly can. Uh, of course, the news over the weekend since that article was published uh, was uh, that uh, Ireland uh, also joined the list and then uh, earlier today, the Netherlands has joined the list. Um, so that's uh, seven countries that were the full suspension uh, and another uh, load of countries that, that are, are at least suspending based on a single batch at this point in time. AstraZeneca, of course, are saying uh, that, you know, millions of people in the EU and the UK have received a dose of the a first dose of the vaccine and fewer than 40 cases of blood clots uh, reported as of last week. That's their claim. Uh, but, you know, the fundamental point here, I think, uh, David, is that uh, when it comes to the how we measure uh, reactions to the vaccines, um, the this position of the government, of the MHRA and of the manufacturers is, well, you know, if there was a reaction to the vaccine, it was because these people were older people, that they had underlying health conditions and so on. Uh, but when it comes to counting uh, the people that have uh, allegedly died of COVID-19 itself, then it, that possibility that their underlying health conditions are the older people that is thrown out as being irrelevant um, so one of the points that the article makes is that uh, the, the manufacturers the government and the regulator seem to be wanting to have it both ways and i'm not sure that they're really in a legitimate position to do that they're wanting it both ways and also that in harmony the manufacturers the government and the regulator 
are indistinguishable from one another. In fact, the government's enabling things because they're, they're saying to the regulator, um, we need this now, the regulator's waving it on through, and uh, the, 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 the vaccine manufacturers find themselves, themselves with no liability. Um, there doesn't seem to be an independent voice anywhere in the entire system. Uh, indeed. Now that brings us on to, uh, to this in the mail. And there's been quite a furore as a result of this article. And, uh, but the headline is undisputed middleweight champion, marvelous Marvin Hagler dies at age 66 after one of his big, biggest rivals, uh, Tommy Hearns said that he was in an ICU fighting the effects of the vaccine. Yes, his wife Kay announced his death on Saturday, claiming it was unexpected. And he's only 66, and I would imagine, okay, boxing's a hard game, but I, was, I would imagine uh, in, in, in very good physical condition for a 66-year-old. Um, and yes, Tommy Hearns said Hagler was in the ICU fighting the after-effects of the vaccine, and now he has sadly passed away. Um, and this is, a, a, this is the, the boxer of the 1980s, the boxer of the decade. Um, someone we all grew up watching and uh, who was um, a, an exemplar of his sport. Um, one of many celebrities who have taken the vaccine and then um, died shortly thereafter. Um, and in each case, the reaction is the same. The, the information comes out and then there's a wall of um, claims that this is, this is misinformation, this, there's no truth in this, there's nothing to see here, move along. There is no link, it's just a coincidence. David, I'll just to add to that, I spoke to two people who work within the NHS over the weekend. Both of them had stories of colleagues uh, ending up in ICU as a result of the vaccine. Uh, one individual still in a very bad way and uh, two also, two cases um, told to me from within family members. So I know absolutely that these are correct. Uh, people extremely in, uh, unwell following the vaccine. But of course, these, these are things which the government simply does not want to tell the population. Yes, yes indeed, it's... it's uh, sorry, no, no, you, you go on with the next one then, Div. Right. Um, this next, this next slide, this is from a, 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 a blog, the Steve Sayers blog, and it's a very interesting chart uh, produced by, by Mr Sayers, which shows the support for Scottish independence over time. Um, and basically the zero line is 50-50, uh, and everything above the line is uh, favouring staying part of the UK, and everything below the line is favouring independence. Um, the extreme... Uh, left-hand side of this chart, that's the independence referendum, um, where it was the, the, the polls were showing it was roughly 50-50 split, although obviously in reality it wasn't. It was a 10-point lead for remaining in the UK. So there's maybe a bias here that's, that's in favour of independence. It may overstate the independence case. But the shape's the thing I want to highlight. You see here that it's, it's consistently pro-staying in the UK, apart from the time which coincides with the coronavirus. So what I'm suggesting here is that one of the effects that this is showing is that the suspension of all economic laws, apparently, uh, the suspension of all rights, the locking of everyone in the home, the subjection of them to constant um, politically-led um, fear-mongering and, um, and statements from the television about how we're going to run our lives, 
it has produced a change, a political change in the society. And it's a, this political change in Scotland, which now seems to be wearing off, um, thanks to the Salmon Affair, uh, may well be, be present across, um, across the world. That what we're seeing here is people are more willing to accept authoritarian regimes, they're more willing to accept being told what to do. They're more willing to accept that the government in the nanny state knows best because of the effects of a year of lockdown, of restrictions and of um, fear being broadcast a hundred times a day. Um, but we do get free lunches. Well, there is always a chance of a free lunch, at least for now. Now, this is a, an article by David Stockman that looks at the, the spending in the United States, and the figures are astronomic. Um, so he's talking about before the lockdown, um, there was about $265 billion a month uh, transfer payments. So that's, that's the benefits, essentially. Um, and uh, that went up to uh, $546 billion in the month of April last year. Um, and if you add in everything else that was that was going on, then that was $18.2 billion a day were being pumped into the American economy by the government. Um, so this is vast levels of debt. I mean, just unimaginable. And he, he concludes here, you can't make it up. Transfer payments to households during the past 10 months have exceeded the loss of household wages and salaries by nearly four times. So what we're doing is we're, we're printing money and we're throwing it into the system to levitate something that is and otherwise would be in, in free fall. And this has never been done before. I mean, money printing and spending on this level across multiple economies, across most of the globe, has never been done before. No one knows where this goes. Mm. Indeed. Uh, right, well, let's, uh, let's move quickly on to this. Uh, this is the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. It was introduced to Parliament uh, on uh, a few days ago. It was uh, This page is last updated on Friday. Uh, this is a bill to make provision about the police and other emergency workers. Um, so that all sounds very good. Uh, it's being presented uh, in the media as about cutting crime, about building safer communities, about uh, uh, dealing with uh, nasty stuff like... Uh, uh, you know, adults in positions of trust uh, abusing children and so on. So there's uh, lots of, uh, of stuff in this bill which is going to generate positive headlines and, and people are going to be very much for it. But uh, once we start looking at the detail, uh, it's perhaps not quite so good. Uh, so let's just have a quick look here. Uh, it, first of all, it enshrines the police covenant in law. Now, many people may not have heard about the police covenant, but this is a new thing. We'll, we'll see that what that is in a second. Uh, but one of the other things that it does is that, uh, penalties will be doubled from 12 months to two years for those who uh, assault police or other emergency workers, such as prison officers, fire personnel, frontline health workers. I'm sure there'll be plenty of support for that. Uh, but let's have a look and see what the police covenant says, because it's now going to be enshrined in law. Uh, and, but it has been published, uh, and this is it. This covenant acknowledges the sacrifices made by those who serve or ha who have served in our police forces, either in a paid or voluntary capacity, whether as an officer or as a member of staff. It is intended to ensure that they and their families are not disadvantaged as a result of that commitment, and seeks to mitigate the impact on their day to day to, uh, sorry on their day to day life uh, or their access to justice. Police officers are required at all times to uphold the important principles of policing by consent. 
uh, the foundation of their long-standing relationship with the public. Uh, we ask uh, a great deal of our police and we expect the highest standards to be maintained. In return, we have a responsibility to provide protection and support to the police. Uh, the Covenant recognises that working within policing uh, comes with a high level of personal accountability, duty and responsibility, requiring courage and personal risk, both on and off duty. This recognition extends to all those who support police forces in upholding the principles and practices of their vocation. Uh, so David, just very briefly, um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on, on that being enshrined in law, because it doesn't seem to me to be very specific. No, it's very general. To the, it's, a, it's a general aspiration, and to enshrine a general aspiration in law uh, leaves many questions about you know, how it's actually to be applied. Yes. So let's come back to the legislation then. And this is when it starts uh, getting interesting um, because, uh, of course, uh, it strengthens police powers to tackle non-violent protests. Um, so this is in part three, which is all about public order. Um, and one of the things that they mention is noise. Uh, there's legis they're now going to make legislation uh, to... Uh, uh, limit the amount of noise that can be made in a protest. Uh, this, by the way, is basically for this section, all amendments to the Public Order Act 1986. So it has to be seen in that context. Uh, it talks about serious disruption to the activities of an organisation which are carried on in the vicinity of a public assembly. So uh, in other words, if you are on a fracking protest, for example, and you are slow walking in front of trucks, uh, bringing material to a frack site, uh, that would be illegal under this. Um, if you intentionally or recklessly cause public nuisance, if you impose, uh, and it also talks about uh, putting conditions on one person uh, protests, but then it also talks about strengthening police powers to tackle un unauthorized encampments. So this comes under part four. Um, and uh, this is about unlawful encampments that significantly interfere with a person or community's ability to make use of land. Um, and that uh, undoubtedly will have a corporate aspect to this as well. Many of the uh, really limiting aspects of this bill, um, which are going to pretty much stop protest if it passes in its current form, certainly going to stop protest in its current form, um, were outlined in this document, which is published by the NPCC uh, following the, uh, the fracking uh, campaign mainly. Um, and this document pretty much relies on the idea that uh, Human rights protections for protests should not extend to, to activities that negate the rights of others, including companies. And David, I think this is a pretty highly dangerous direction to be going in because when a corporation uh, is able to hold its hand up and say, uh, government, where our profits are being affected by protest um, and the government is saying to the police, you need to go and remove this protest, that's really taking things a step over the line that uh, people shouldn't be accepting. Yeah, it's very strange. It, two things immediately occur. They seem to be moving an awful lot of issues which would normally be settled by a civil process in a court, and they're criminalising them so the police can get involved directly in, in favour of one side in, in a dispute. Um, negate the rights of others. Um, when you're talking about corporate profits. So that's one step away from saying, I'm very sorry, you can't set up your fish and chip shop here because this, this other company, Fish and Chips International, 
uh, says that the, that the competition would affect their profits. So we're going to arrest you if you try. It seems to be going down roads which are counter to um, a, a pluralistic free society um, and very much towards one where the state decides what you'll believe, the state decides what you'll do, the state decides who will win and who will lose, and, and uh, your, your obedience is, is appreciated, but your comment or your protest or your objection is really not welcome. Uh, indeed. Uh, but uh, there's a few other bits and pieces in this bill. Here's uh, one of them. Uh, the power to specify other areas as controlled areas. And the example that they give for this is, for example, either House of Parliament or, as is proposed, uh, look, uh, that any House of Parliament be located somewhere other than the Palace of Westminster as a result of the uh, of parliamentary building works or for any other reason. Um, and this is quite interesting because the Department of Transport has just announced today uh, that it is uh, moving a significant proportion of its uh, activities out of London and into the Midlands and the North, I think into Manchester, uh, to, into Birmingham, sorry, and into Leeds. Um, and, uh, and we've got other government departments doing the same, the Ministry of Defence moving uh, civil servants to Scotland and, uh, and other places. So we are seeing, as you keep talking about this issue of breakdown, Brian, but this is the dismantling of the nation and Dis the institutions of the nation. That's that's the word. So the nation's being dismantled under the smokescreen of chaos. And as we've said many times, um, we were warned that uh, chaos was to be introduced by the Conservative MP Nick Bowles, as he was. Uh, that was reported in the public press. And... Uh, UK column under the psychological attack on the UK has also been detailing what is to be done, which is the country taken apart. We're yes. witnessing it. We're living it. Yeah. Uh, now, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. And also please do share our material uh, that's uh, on the various platforms. That'd be very much appreciated. Okay. Well, an update. Um, there was a problem with the Lynn Thayer funding appeal. Uh, to be very simple about it, it was taken down by the uh, uh, crowdfunder uh, firm. They suddenly didn't like it. It was removed very quickly. Of course, uh, that means that people will have their donations um, returned to them. Um, there is a new route uh, to give funding to Lynn Thayer's for a court case. Um, so this is the detailed address uh, to go to. A little bit more information is circulating on this. You'll be able to freeze this on screen and have a look. But if we expand it a bit, uh, there is a bank account which is set up. The sort code is 230580. The account number is 32087019. Uh, the BIC is MY sorry, I'll start again, is MYMBGB2L and the IBAN is GB61MYMB2305803201. And I'll just uh, emphasise here that there's also a, an email address which is CPR4D that's lowercase with the uh, numeric four. So CPR4D at livingstones.uk. And uh, they're asking that uh, if you make a donation, and we certainly hope you will, 
uh, you put in that it's for Lynn's fund, you give a name, a date, a time, an amount. And I can say that uh, the people putting this together have done it very kindly. Uh, they are fully in support of Lynn Thire and time is now running short because of course the court case is coming up. So if you have donated, will you have a look at donating once again? Okay, thank you to the viewers who sent this one through to us. Have co has COVID changed hospitals for the better? Uh, with some interesting statements, uh, the pandemic has been a catalyst for an innovation in the NHS and some changes will have lasting effects, says Dr John Wright of the Bradford Royal Infirmary. Uh, it then says this, the COVID pandemic has transformed our hospitals. Car parks are empty, once bustling corridors are quiet, and these days you won't see any staff making fashion statements. We're all in scrubs and masks. Well, this puzzled me a bit, Mike, because, of course, we've got people who've been sent to prison. Well, they've been charged with filming empty hospitals. And we've been told for weeks that the hospitals have been bursting to capacity with COVID. But here it says that COVID has transformed our hospitals. The car parks are empty. Once bustling corridors are quiet. And these days you won't see any staff making fashion statements. We're all dancing in scrubs and masks. So David, you're smiling, but of course, uh, this is the truth coming to the surface. This one we liked as well. Thank you for the viewer who sent it in. Evening Standard, the UK's national statistician says he has no doubt there will be a further wave of COVID-19 infections in the autumn. Do you think that's because there's always a an infection comes along from flu type viruses. Professor Saria Diamond, head of the ONS, said that while people need to understand how the data is moving forward and look at the impact of the wonderful vaccine rollout, the virus isn't going away. Mm. So no political statement by the man who's, who's in charge of the data there. So where does this bring us? Well, if we're looking at what's happening in the country, we are warning the political agenda is now driving what can councils do and say. And back on the 27th of November, we were talking about a case in Plymouth, where as a result of Black Lives Matter protests, Plymouth City Council simply decided that they were going to rename a street. Uh, they were going to change it from John Haw uh, Hawkins Square uh, and they were looking to name it after the black Plymouth footballer Jack Leslie. And this was all done really with no proper consultation or in fact from the public. Now, the man who was fighting it, uh, Danny Bamping, um, has been continuing his action to take this through the courts. And we were able to do an interview with him about a week ago. I'm afraid the sound quality is very poor, but there's a little clip here and uh, we'll have a look at that and then talk about the importance of what he's saying. So John Hawkins was Drake's cousin and he was an MP for Plymouth. He was in front of the Armada in the boats when the Armada came and he saw off them while you know, his cousin was playing bowls, apparently. You know, he set up a hospital for people in the Navy. That's still in operation. It still exists today. He did amazing things, not just for this country, but especially for this city. And the only place in Plymouth where Plymouth recognises Sir John Hawkins is that square. There's no statue on the whole like there is for Drake. And this is the thing is that we're trying to judge um, 500 years ago 
with today's morals and ethics. We're trying to judge what they did 500 years ago with today's thinking and morals and ethics. It's completely wrong. What happened was the legal notice that the council put out into the square for 30 days to notify people they're going to change the square, that was void ab initio because there was no signs in the square at the time because they've actually removed the Sir John Hawkins Square sign. However, what happened was some local councillors from the Conservative end wanted to get people to write letters, letters to the court. So they asked the lawyer from Plymouth City Council to say, what is the process so I can tell my constituents? And it was those emails that got spread like wildfire for people who wanted to object. And it was that wording in those emails that was deliberate to, which is why 98% of the letters written to the count, to the court were then rejected. But what was interesting is this. Before any appeal started, all of those letters that were written to the courts by the people of Plymouth, objecting and appealing and saying, we've got to do with this, they were given to the council unredacted. In this case, my letter was the only one accepted by the court as a formal appeal. It went to this case management hearing on... 9-11 and that was just basically set out the rules of what was going to happen for, for the actual trial so then we had the actual half a day that was listed for that happened on friday the 13th of november and that went really well i pulled the council apart they clearly didn't follow the legislation they didn't follow their own policies um their witnesses were absolutely a disgrace the way that it panned out in the court hearing the judge sent out the witness and the council's barrister to, to decide whether they were going to answer my questions or not. Because if they didn't answer my questions, it was going to be a very brief hearing. Because they refused to identify the member of Jack Leslie's family that they got permission from. And now I know why. Because what, what, what they did was, Brian, in a nutshell, if you like, they, they construed this process where they omitted key information, the council omitted key information from the court, so that when the judgment was made on the 4th of December, the judge would side with them. However, since that judgment, I've done a freedom of information request, requesting the actual decision from the council when they made the decision to change it from Sir John Hawkins Square to Jack Leslie Square, because that was never evidenced in court. So we, we encourage people to listen to the full report, but what have we got? We, we've got essentially that a decision is made within a local council, not as a result of what local people wanted, but as a result of following the political agenda. And that at the time was very much Black Lives Matter protests, forcing the issue, statues to be taken down, uh, historic names were a bad thing. So we see that this was political manoeuvring is then translated into action by a local authority, in this case, Plymouth City Council. And uh, what is uh, Mr. Bamping talking about? He's talking about the fact that even when local people responded saying, we don't actually want this, most of their responses were not able to be considered in in court so they, they that opinion was just pushed to one side and what was ultimately taking place uh, that the council was able to bulldoze what was clearly a political agenda through the courts 
and uh, Danny Bamping's work to date is now highlighting the fact that information which should have come forward to uh, make a just decision was simply not put into the courts. Uh, David, we're, we're really uh, tight for time today. This seems a very small case, but actually the implications are huge because what it, what it is showing is we're moving into the arena where local authorities can just suddenly switch onto a political agenda one day and then start taking action on the ground with no democratic process uh, taking place to uh, support it. The, the reason it's huge is it's the method that's used throughout our public um, office today. Uh, the, 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 the public's views are ignored. Um, the, uh, anything that, that involves the courts are, um, are, are so skewed as, as to be beyond belief. Decision-making is not carried out in the way that it is written down, and it must be carried out. Um, and I, over and over again, reason, responsibility, public opinion, they're all ignored. And the result is that uh, a few activists end up dominating the whole of society. Uh, the um, will of the people is, is suppressed and their voices are, are silenced. This is everywhere. It's in the planning processes. It's in how people are, are, are looked after in hospital. It's in every aspect of public life. Yes. Well, we just uh, pop this one up on screen because uh, Danny is legally trained. Um, uh, he, did a, he did a law degree. He's not a practicing solicitor, but he has done that training at law. He is going to take this through to the High Court. He needs some help to do that. So there's an address for another crowdfunder. But I think this is a very valuable case. If you're able to give him some support, that would be very appreciated. And just to um, really rub home the dangers of what's going on. This, this was also sent to me to do with Plymouth. Plymouth councillor suspended over offensive photo mocking women's struggles. And this is a local councillor that donned a wig to go on a smaller film clip on Facebook, really mocking the fact that we've, we've now got this uh, women against man uh, women against men battle being pushed forward but if you look at the responses here I go to the bottom I won't bring that up on screen but it says so now Southway is without the only councillor who really cares about the ward and works so hard for it anyone who knows Mark would realise he was mocking the suggestion of a curfew admittedly it was ill-timed post and I'm sure he deeply regrets it now so that's what the local people think of their councillor but look at the top comment here we need programs we need re-education we need to rid Plymouth of toxic masculinity unconscious bias and white privilege we need to start teaching critical race theory we had 11 reclaim the streets protests by women in Leeds during 1977 during the Sutcliffe's Yorkshire reign of terror let's not waste another 43 years we need more graffiti more purple lights and nice candles too so you can see what's being lined up here and of course these people are sponsored politically um, so very dangerous stuff under the stir under the surface uh, in the meantime david in scotland uh, the hate crime bill is it passed 
it's passed, it went through, uh, 82 votes to 32, uh, and with that, our ability to, free, to freely speak our minds in Scotland has been uh, reduced to an extent unmatched anywhere in the world, at least the Western world. Uh, the, here, the, the Herald, uh, Ian McQuirter writes, uh, so what will independence be if the SNP no longer protect freedom of speech? Uh, he says, since the Middle Ages, Scots have entertained themselves during the long winter nights, the dialectical tradition known as flighting. As a form of conversation in which you knowingly subject your friend or colleague to verbal violence and insult. Weeping millennials, do not try this at home. Um, and he continues, um, Scotland now is a dubious honour of being the only country in the Western world with the state policies, uh, sorry, state polices, what you say even in the privacy of your own home. One of the most egregious aspects of legislation is the explicit removal of the dwelling defence uh, the clause in the old Public Order Act which ruled that speech in the privacy of your own home was of no interest to the law. The Justice Secretary Humza Yusuf evidently thinks that Scots have been planning Nuremberg rallies in their kitchens, so he dropped it. Attempts to include freedom of speech defence in the hate crime bill have been risable when they weren't self-contradictory. Ultimately, the decision is down to the convenient legal friction, fiction, the reasonable person, to decide when insult, ridicule and disrespect becomes stirring up hatred. In other words, no one can know. Is merely uh, presents us with the paradox of how a reasonable person can interpret an unreasonable law. And he concludes the law is almost certainly unworkable in practice, however it can do immense damage merely by being in the statute book. It will not just chill freedom of expression, but place it in the deep freeze. Former Deputy Leader of the SNP, Jim Sillas, has described the bill as one of the most pernicious and dangerous pieces of legislation. Uh, concern has been echoed by everyone from the National Secular Society to the Sikh Network. I can think of no other piece of legislation in recent times which has united church schools, atheists, police, feminists, libertarians in condemnation of legislative folly. And uh, now we've got a little clip of um, Jim Sillers, uh, former deputy leader of the SNP, stating what he thinks of the, uh, the new law. So I regard this as one of the most pernicious and dangerous pieces of legislation ever produced by any government in modern times in any part of the United Kingdom. And the unworkability of this law and the fact that it will set neighbour against neighbour and be an invitation to enormous mischief uh, will just work out in a slow and predictable path uh, until it says eventually it is, it is removed from the statute book as another in the long line of huge aggressive totalitarian mistakes by the SNP. Um, well, I just want to, uh, to bring uh, Tulsi Gabbard in at this time. Now, of course, most people will know who Tulsi Gabbard is, US Congresswoman uh, for Hawaii. And uh, well, she was talking about cancel culture recently, and uh, she made this point. In a cancel culture, you have some people who believe that they're special, that they're superior, uh, that they have the power to be able to shut down those that have ideas and views that are different. Uh, you see the final expression of cancel culture in Islamist terrorist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, who basically go and behead those who they deem to be infidels or heretics. Uh, and uh, David, uh, I guess Scotland's not too far away from that. <laughs> well, yes, it's an interesting thing because we've now got both Hamza Yusuf, the, um, the, the, the Justice Secretary, making speeches about the dreadfulness of having white people everywhere, uh, I think he means Scottish people, uh, and also the uh, leader of the Labour Party in Scotland making an almost identical speech. 
and yet that's okay. Um, it's all about political control. It's all about authority. The people who will be targeted are the dissidents, are the people on the margins, are the people who are not powerful, because power might makes right. So it's not the powerful that will be that will be up on uh, charges on this law. It won't be Hamza Yusuf with his racist whitey speech. No, he'll be immune. That's why he thinks he can get away with it. But but other people, and no one knows who, who will be uh, find themselves marginalised at any given time, they will be targeted and uh, they will be in trouble. Okay, thanks for that, David. Well, we're going to move on to military matters. And this is a pretty unpleasant um, article, but I think we need to uh, talk about it. It's the Mail Online. And the headline is Barbarity that shames the RAF. Sickening video of 28-pound water barrel being used on naked young recruit in initiation ceremony triggers criminal investigation. Now, this is utterly vile. Um, sexual abuse and assault which is being investigated by the military even the Daily Mail said that it was reminiscent of abuse suffered by Iraqis at Abu Ghraib prison so they're beginning to see the dangers of this um, we don't need to go into more detail about actually went on but we're talking um, we're talking very very unpleasant assault uh, what was interesting is the responses in the article so this is Tobias Elwood he says thankfully this deplorable incident does not reflect the high standards of behavior now exhibited across all three services and huge progress made in removing the culture of initiation practices that have no place in our modern military uh, this incident, however isolated, will temporarily damage the fine reputation of the RAF. The Ministry of Defence will need to act swiftly and purposely to repair this damage, not just because past generations of our flying heroes would demand it, but because recruiting the next generation of pilots and personnel will be all the more challenging. Um, but of course, he knows that this is not an isolated incident. And so if we move on down, uh, we can come on to this. Um, that last year, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace launched an anti-bullying 24-7 telephone helpline for service personnel across the Army, Royal Navy and Royal Air Force to allow troops to report any abuse or harassment. So um, we've only got to do another search around this article to see that, in fact, the bullying and the vicious sexual bullying has got so bad that the military's had to set up a special helpline to deal with it. So there's been a culture change in the military. There's always been bullying, uh, but we've ne now seen a massive increase and we're seeing this very perverse sexual element to the bullying. Um, Ben Wallace knows this is going on, Tobias Elwood knows it's going on, the Ministry of Defence knows it's going on, uh, but actually are they dealing with the uh, issue? I don't believe so. So if we go to The Guardian, now this is an old article, but it's just reinforcing the point. Bullying in armed forces on the rise, MOD figures reveal. And it says a year ago, defence ministers announced the creation of a special database to compile details of sexual offences relating to armed forces personnel. However, the figures are not being made public and there remains no central record of the overall number of sexual offences involving the armed forces. So, uh, Mike, it's pretty obvious what's going on here. We've got uh, a rise of increasingly violent and unpleasant abuses inside the military there's got to be a reason for it 
and uh, we've got to start looking at what the senior officers have to say about what's going on. Mm. So um, this was sent to me uh, last few days as well. And what does this show us? It shows us that we've now got some extraordinary ideas amongst senior officers in the military. We've got Vice Admiral Nick Hine. Uh, he's saying to be blunt, autism has made him a better, better naval officer. Um, but he says also um, that uh, the armed forces need what he calls more neurodiversity. Uh, so we need people with very different opinions to make the military better. Uh, that's a very interesting uh, position. We've also got very strong lobbying within the military from LGBT plus groups, uh, where this has become a key part of their work within the military. Um, so we just uh, show some of this on the screen. This is uh, here for um, an upcoming quad service LGBT plus virtual conference. Uh, which is going to be held on sexual orientation and gender identity conference. And if we go on through this uh, Twitter page, which is advertising all this, uh, this one caught my attention because uh, they bring in air cadets to target with this material. Um, now, why is this a delicate subject? Well, of course, there'll be many uh, people out there within the LGBT community saying, but we are not involved in the sort of abuses you've talked about, and we fully understand that. However, uh, predatory individuals are, and our concern remains about their proximity to the younger people around uh, the military. Uh, but if you want more detailed and more detailed analysis on this, you can have a look at part two of the UK column's psychological attack on the UK, where Alex Thompson and myself specifically look at how the uh, British military has been undermined uh, by introducing practices, procedures and policies, uh, which ultimately are there in order to um, help bring down the military rather than strengthen it. Uh, David, it's a very delicate issue. We know there's a lot of emotion out there the moment you get onto this topic. But uh, when you see people abused uh, in this particular incident that we've reported, and there are many others, some of them even more horrific, it's clear that something is taking place within our armed forces that needs deep investigation. Well, yes, and there's an element of this, that L is the LGBT movement going to be uh, the next Rotherham, right? Because what was the problem at Rotherham? There was abuse taking place. It was everywhere, and officially it didn't exist. Because officially, it was, it, you would be called racist, you'd be called names if you, if you mentioned this. So it doesn't exist, we're just going to ignore it. Well, these young people who are, who are being ca kept captive from having sex with a hundred different men, they, they, they're making a lifestyle choice, right? That's, that 14-year-old that girl's made a lifestyle choice. It's not for us to say. This is the attitude. Are we just now repeating this and calling it LGBT and putting a, putting a rainbow flag on it? Um, I, I think we owe it to our young people to take, to take this particular issue, awkward though it is, seriously and look at risks and look at harm and um, look at the protection that they deserve. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I guess we're right at the time. time, unfortunately. Um, unfortunately, now we've got a, uh, some more material, which we'll, we'll do on Wednesday. But uh, David, uh, let's finish with uh, your final slide.
Final cartoon here, this is uh, Boris and uh, his little team and they are involved in the uh, permissible daily exercise and that is moving the COVID goalposts. And isn't that true? Isn't it just? I'm just wondering whether they were allowed to do that. Would they be claiming that was day, daily exercise in moving the goalpost? <laughs> it looks like they're a bit close to each other. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. better stop there. Yes. We'll say thank you to everybody for joining us. A very big thank you to professional people who are now coming to the UK column with some extremely valuable information. We respect the fact that you are doing that and we will do our best to make sure it's reported in an appropriate way. And a very big thank you to people within the NHS who are now in communication with us, um, telling us that uh, the official story on COVID and COVID vaccines given out by the NHS is clearly uh, not all of the truth. Uh, we'll be back at ten, in 10 minutes as usual if you're on the UK Column website uh, for some extra. Indeed. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.